Greetings in Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright, and this is a video teaching series, How to Study the Bible. And what we're exploring, discussing, is how to study the Bible so that you can find truth that is incontrovertible, that no one can disprove to you. People will have their opinions. People can say, I don't agree with it. That's fine. I don't have a problem with somebody disagreeing with what I believe. But until you can prove to me that what I believe is wrong with Scripture, I'm not giving any credence to your opinion. I'm submitted to Scripture. The Scripture is the final authority of God in my life. Do I perfectly live by that every day? Nobody does. But that's my desire. And when I don't, I confess my sin. But that's the goal. And by the grace of God, that's what I'm desiring to do every day, is to live under the authority of the Word of God. So therefore, I don't care who it is. I don't care how great the religious leader is. I don't care what your position and title is. I don't care how many degrees you got behind your name. I don't want to hear about history. I don't want to hear about your opinions. I don't want to hear about your reasonings. I want scripture. If you want to correct me, and I am correctable. If you want to teach me, I am teachable. You're going to have to bring your scripture. Scripture. I want scripture. I will listen to scripture. I do listen to scripture. And when you bring your scripture, be ready for me to come back and say, okay, well, what about this? And as we discuss that, if you prove to me with your scripture, and it's possible, people have done it, and I'm willing for it to be done. Uh, if you you prove with me with scripture that the position I've taken is wrong, I want truth. I don't want I, I want truth more than I want to be right. And I only be want to be right here between God and me and in my own conscience. I want to be right here. I, I, I don't have an axe to grind with somebody else. You know, I'm not anybody else's judge, so I don't have to be right with anybody else. I have to be right with God. So I'm going to listen to Scripture because I want truth. This isn't a contest. My soul is at stake here. And so we're talking about the biblical principles that are that must be applied, that absolutely must be applied when you're studying the Bible, especially using the topical study method of the Bible, where you've got questions, you've got things you want to know, and you want to know what the Bible says is the way to do certain things. And when you do that, uh, then you, uh, you, when you, when you follow these, then whatever the truth is that God gives you is the truth. And we'll do that. The title of this lesson this is uh, video number 18, lesson number 17, plus the introduction. Uh, the title of this lesson is Context, Context, Context. Now, this is similar to, but not exactly the same as, the previous lesson on rightly dividing the word of truth, even uh, from 2 Timothy 2.15. Even though I will use some of the reasoning from the previous lesson in this one, uh, it's still, I hope to be able to show you the difference between context, 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 and also 
rightly dividing the word of the truth. Sometimes those two principles overlap. Sometimes they don't overlap. Because I can take the context, uh, but not rightly divide the word of truth. The, the context, for instance, shows me that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again at the end of each of the four Gospels. That's the context. That's wonderful. But sometimes you have to have, you have to rightly divide the word to know what the context means. And if you don't know what the context means, then you can't know what the verse means. A parallel and similar principle to rightly dividing the word is always considering the context in which the verse is contained. This principle particularly applies to understanding and rightly dividing the writings of the gospels and the epistles. Now, there are books in the Old Testament that consider history books. The book of Acts is the history book in the New Testament. The gospel preceded it. The book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, which is the history of the New Testament church in, the, in its beginning. And then beginning with Romans through the book of Jude, we have uh, the epistles of apostles written to the church as the Holy Ghost moved on them, most of them, of course, by the Apostle Paul. And then finally, we have one book of prophecy in the New Testament. The Old Testament has similar uh, divisions between the, in it, but they're not all based on a chronological order. The epistles, uh, or the, the, the gospels, the book of Acts, the epistles, uh, and then the book of prophecy are in, to some degree, category by category in, uh, chronological order. The uh, book of Acts takes place after the gospels, time-wise. And, uh, the book of Romans and the epistles and the other, all the epistles were written Somewhere in the latter part of the uh, uh, of the book of Acts, time wise, and then of course the last book that was written is the book of Revelation. It was written by the last apostle who was alive, the apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, where he had been exiled. Uh, they tried to kill him and couldn't. All the other apostles died a uh, a, a the death of a martyr, and they and they tried to kill John. Historically, that we, that's what history says. They tried to kill John when they couldn't. They exiled in the Isle of Patmos, and there God gave him the book of Revelation. So the, these are these are basic contexts. Uh, the Gospels concern events and that occurred exclusively during the time period which concluded the Old Testament. This is something we've got to, have to understand. The Old Testament was not over until the New Testament began. The people of God in the Old Testament were still the people of God during the time frame of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Jews were still the people of God. Now, they might have been to some degree backslidden, uh, some of them at least. Uh, some of them were following so much tradition. The Bible says that Jesus said that they uh, they were making the word of God a none effect in their lives. So the issue here then comes down to uh, how does that apply to us? So let's talk about that. Uh, let me go a little bit farther here before I, I, I get ahead of myself. The epistles, so the uh, gospels were written before uh, the book of Acts, and they concluded the Old Testament. 
And the epistles were not written to sinners. They were written to the church. So the gospels tell us how the gospel came about. Because according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which did not take place till the end of each one of those four gospels. Well, of course, the result of the gospel is people get saved. Where did that happen? In the book of Acts. Starting with the epistles, not one epistle was written to sinners. Not one of them. You look at the address uh, in the beginning of each, uh, each epistle, no matter who the author is, it's written to saved people. Saved people. So when the plan of salvation is discussed in the Gospels, it is discussed in giving context and background and meaning to the plan of salvation, explaining to save people what they, what, what those things they did meant. What was their significance? Now, Jesus gave us the pattern here. He said to Nicodemus, except that he said, good master, no man can do these miracles except God be with him. And Jesus just ignored what he said and said, except the man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, how can I, how can I do that? Jesus said, except the man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he continued to talk. And then Jesus made this statement to him. I've spoken to you earthly things. If you don't understand them, how are you going to understand when I speak to you heavenly things? And then he started speaking heavenly things. And starting with around verse 13, 12, 13, 14, Jesus begins to speak heavenly things. For God so loved. Where's God? He's Well, he's everywhere, but in this case, I'm referring to heaven, the heavenly things. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him should uh, should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a heavenly thing. The new birth is an earthly thing. They're connected. One is salvation from man's perspective about what man's supposed to do. The other salvation from God's perspective about what God did to provide that salvation. They're both true. But I can't, first of all, I can't obey John 3, 3, and 3, 5 because it doesn't explain how to do it. Even Nicodemus acknowledge that. How can a man be born again? But there's no place that says for me to obey John 3.16. So here we go. So I've gotten ahead of myself, but that's okay. I'm going to repeat some things again, repeat again. So that means that third time, probably fourth time, uh, just so you can get this. So let's consider Rightly dividing the word. Let's consider context, context, context in light of these verses. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, beginning with verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he, Christ, the man Christ Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression that were that were, transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Listen carefully now, verse sixteen. For where a testament is, 
There must also be, also of necessity, be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So if I'm going to be saved by a New Testament plan of salvation, even if I knew what it was before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there'd be no power behind it. There'd be no authority to it. It wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Because if it's the New Testament plan of salvation, it can't have any effect until after the testator dies. Now, someone has a will and they have heirs. Say they, their wife has passed. I'm just going to make this simple. The father has a will and he has two sons. And one son says to him, I can't wait for you to die, old man. I want my share now. I don't know why the father did it, but he did. According to scripture, he gave the young man his half the inheritance. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And what did he do with it? Wasted it. He wasted it. The insult... The insult. It's not what he did with the the inheritance that's the ultimate issue. The insult is the boy was saying to his father, I can't wait for you to die, old man, so that I can have my share of this. I want it now. I want it. I want my portion as if you were dead. Now, that's very offensive. And I realize there are very sincere people that aren't intending to be that offensive. But when you're trying to be saved by a plan of salvation that wasn't yet empowered by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you're ignoring how those who, after the death, burial, and resurrection ascension of Jesus Christ, got saved. Is that not offensive to God, to the Father? I know that's strong, but the bottom line is this. It's book. The clear message of the verses from the book of, uh, from the book of Hebrews is that no books of the Bible whose content occurred within a time frame that concluded before the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ can be considered New Testament books. I am not devaluing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the history of the birth, the life, the ministry, and the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I love the books. I treasure and value the books. But they are what they are. The book of Psalms is a beautiful book, but it is what it is. The Pentateuch, the five, first five books of the Old Testament. I mean, did God reveal to Moses the stuff he wrote down about creation? And, and Adam and Eve and the garden and all of that. Wow. How valuable is all of that? But it's not New Testament. The life of David, a man after God's own heart, the one whose name has been put on the throne that Christ is going to sit on forever. It's all Old Testament. It's all wonderful. It's all good. And the, the law, the Old Testament is 
our schoolmaster that brings us to Christ, that lays the foundation for it all, so that those four books of the gospel have meaning to them, value to them, because they are the fulfillment of the coming Messiah from birth to death to resurrection to ascension. They're all there. But the promise of the Father, because of the gospel, did not occur until Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And that's why Jesus said to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, tarry in Jerusalem till ye receive the promise of the Father, which saith he, you've heard of me. Now, all of that, this seems complicated, but it's not. It would be like somebody sending me a letter that had a check in it. And that check having John Smith's name on it. I could get excited over the check if I want, but my name's not on the check. That's context. That's rightly dividing. We do it every day. We do it every day. Stores aren't supposed to take a credit card from you without your name on it, without some kind of identification. That's you. That's context. That's rightly dividing. We do it every day in business. We do it. So this has got to apply to the word of God as we study it. It's got to apply. It's, it's principle. First of all, it was God's principle before it ever became a principle that man used. Again, this, the statement that any book that does not have the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in it, uh, is not a New Testament book. And the portions of any book that has the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ at the end of them are, that's not New Testament. It's transitional. You could call it transitional, but the plan of salvation is still, still the Old Testament plan of salvation. You say, well, what John Baptist preached wasn't what Moses practiced. No, no, it wasn't exactly, was it? And yet historically, we know that the Jews did some baptizing, so they weren't unfamiliar with baptizing, and they believed that Christ was coming. And so for John the Baptist to come and preach that you should be you should repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins in the name of the one who was to come, and we know that's how he did it, because in Acts chapter 19, the disciples of John at Ephesus told Paul exactly what he preached and what they obeyed. They were baptized in the name of the one who was to come. They didn't know that name, but they were baptized like that because that's what John the Baptist did. John didn't baptize in his own name. He baptized in the name of the one who was to come. So the gospels were written about the time period when the, when the Christ or Messiah is culminating the purpose of the old Testament and fulfilling the prophecies about his birth, life, and ministry. They also depict his submitting of himself to be the final Old Testament sacrifice, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Consequently, no one was actually saved by the New Testament plan of salvation during the time period of the Gospels because the New Testament did not yet exist. You can't be saved by a New Testament plan of salvation when there is not yet a New Testament in force. 
Now, you say, well, but, but they preached about the coming New Testament. Yeah, they did. And Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Daniel, all, among others, all prophesied there was coming a New Testament. Does that make them New Testament books? Because there are scriptures in those books that are quoted in the New Testament about the New Testament. Does that make them New Testament books? No. Why is this such a big deal? Because the church world wants to ignore the book of Acts. Because if they compare themselves to the book of Acts, they can't explain the differences. They can't. They cannot explain the differences. Consequently, no one was actually saved by the New Testament plan of salvation during the time period of the Gospels because the New Testament did not exist. I realize I'm saying some things and reading them, I'm going to say them again. Okay? But the point's being, I'm tr- the point's trying to be made. Therefore, in rightly dividing the word of the truth, we cannot find the New Testament plan of salvation clearly and plainly taught, uh, and or obeyed before the day of Pentecost, which is the day the church was born and the New Testament began. Now, here's another point I'm just going to throw out here in the midst of this reading and commentary. How can you be, New Testament salvation puts you in the church. That's what Paul said, Galatians 3.27, for as many as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And he also said we're baptized by the Spirit, we're uh we're water baptized into the body and we're spirit baptized. The spirit is baptized into us and those two things makes us a part of the body. Well, I got a question. How can you be baptized into a church that doesn't exist? The word church is found in the King James New Testament gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John twice, both times in Matthew. It's not even used one time in Mark, uh, Luke, or John. And both the times it's used in Matthew, in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, it's used with a future tense verb. Jesus said, upon this rock, I shall, I will, I will build my church. Will is future tense. He didn't say, I am building my church. He didn't say, I have built my church. He said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's all future tense. It hadn't been done yet. He was telling us what was coming. Again, context, 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 and rightly dividing the word of truth. Furthermore, every epistle. I'm going to read this again. Therefore, in rightly dividing the word of truth, we cannot find the New Testament plan of salvation clearly and plainly taught and or obeyed before the day of Pentecost, which is the day the church was born and the New Testament began. Furthermore, every epistle and the book of Revelation was written to the church. People who were already saved. No, no, not one single epistle is addressed to sinners. Every a single epistle is written to the church. And so is the book of Revelation written to the church. Now, that means the church has already come into existence, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it was not in existence. It came into existence in Acts chapter 2, and all the epistles in the book of Revelation were written to the church, which was already in existence. 
That's the context. That's rightly dividing the word. And the book of Acts is the historical record of people, sinners, actually getting saved. The book of Acts is the only New Testament book with an actual record of sinners being saved. It's the only one. And yet, the church world ignores it. One of their favorite people to ignore is Cornelius. He was a centurion of the man called the Italian man. That means he was an officer in the Roman army. He was devout, feared God with all his house, prayed to God always, gave much alms to the people. And according to the angel, he wasn't saved. God sent an angel to tell him he wasn't saved and he'd send to Peter so Peter could come tell him how to be saved. Now, the church world doesn't want to have to try to explain that. God, the Holy Ghost, in writing through Luke, Acts chapter 10, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, described Cornelius as devout. And the Greek word there isn't just devout, it's the extreme of it. it the Greek word is well devout. Devout, feared God with all of his house, prayed to God always, gave much alms to the people, and he wasn't saved. And this is confirmed by Peter's testimony in Acts 11 when he testified to the church in Jerusalem after he got back from preaching these Gentiles uh, at Caesarea. And it's confirmed also in the church council in Acts chapter 15 when they were trying to decide what to do with all these Gentiles who weren't raised Jews but are now Christians. It's confirmed in all three of those places. In fact, Peter says it this way. He's, after there had been much disputing, Peter said, this is Acts chapter 15, uh, Brother, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost unto us, even as he did under, uh, unto them, even as he did unto us. That was the witness. God bore, it's one thing for us to witness to God, but God witnessed for them. How did God witness that he received them? By giving them the Holy Ghost. And the next verse says, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Difference? So the question is, is there a difference between what you believe and what the apostles in the book of Acts believe? Is there a difference in your practice and experience in what the apostles and Cornelius and his household believed and practiced and experienced? If there's a difference, God didn't put that difference there. God put no difference between them. Plan of salvation was the same all through the book of Acts. The experience was the same all through the book of Acts. That's why I'm saying here, context, context, context. Now, people quote from Romans 10, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who was it written to? Read the first part of the book of Romans. Who was it written to? It was written to the church. It was written to save people. He wasn't writing to people to tell them how to be saved. He wasn't doing that. So let me go back to reading here. Again, furthermore, every epistle in the book of Revelation was written to the church, people who are already saved. 
Therefore, every discussion of salvation in these books was addressing, teaching, and explaining important topics and instructions concerning the roots, ramifications, and subsequent life experiences relative to and as postscripts to the plan of salvation, but not the actual plan itself as preached by the apostles. It's there. The plan of salvation is preached in the book of Acts is there. It's clearly there. But it's spoken from a heavenly perspective, explaining to them what happened. You go to first cha- first Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through eleven, it's there. You go to Titus three and five, it's there. You can, I can go on and on. It's there. It's there. But it's not said as specifically and as clearly as it is in the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, it was said specifically and clearly to sinners to tell them how to be saved. On the day of Pentecost, the crowd said, they were pricked in their hearts, they were convicted and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? What must we do? And Peter told them. Peter standing up with the eleven said, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Clearly there. And in every other place the plan of salvation was practiced, you find those elements. And then Paul explained the depths of it. Romans chapter 6, baptized, and those are baptized into Christ, they've been baptized into his death, and, and also you're resurrected by the power of the Holy Ghost, et cetera, et cetera. Romans 8, it's all there. But it's all there in explaining to save people what's really going on in their life, what really happened in those simple acts that they did strictly by faith without fully understanding all the depths of it. You say, well, they ought to have understood it. So you tell a baby, uh, a toddler sitting in a high chair, do this, don't do this. Do you explain in detail why they should and shouldn't do that? No. You explain those things as they get older. That's exactly what God's done. The epistles were never intended to supersede or contradict what the book of Acts, the only historical book of the New Testament, records as to what was preached to the lost and believed and practiced by them in order to be saved. In concluding this point, both the gospels and the epistles are complementary to the teachings on salvation. The early church, Acts 2.42, the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Why? Because they were obeying Jesus' admonition to teach us to obey, observe all things that he had personally commanded them to do. Talked about this in the last lesson. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Colon. It's not a period, it's a colon. This, that means the sentence isn't complete, the thought isn't complete, the point isn't finished. Go ye therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Only those things that are right, that are faithful, faithful to this command, including all valid continuations and fulfillments of this command of the church today, can be considered rightly dividing the word of truth. That's why the early church, it says, Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Why? Because they were doing, the apostles did exactly what Jesus commanded them to do in Matthew 28.20. 20. 
He commanded, they commanded them. They taught them and commanded them to do the things that Jesus commanded. Acts 2.38, Jesus commanded that. Amen. The apostle Jude, who was the natural brother of Jesus Christ, his mother was Mary. Obviously, Joseph was his biological father. Uh, admonished the church in his only epistle. Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And there are certain, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, you should contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. When was it delivered? On the day of Pentecost. And thereafter, as the apostles obeyed the command of Jesus in Matthew 28, 20, and taught them all those things that he had commanded them, and they continued steadfastly in the, in the apostles' doctrine. But here, near the years and years after the birthday of the church, the apostle Jude is saying, you know, there are people among us who are not of us, but have been accepted by us, and they've come in here teaching stuff that is not in the book. And you should not accept it. You shouldn't just say, well, we don't want to be offensive and, and let it go. No, you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints because they're trying to lead you astray. But they've been baptized in Jesus' name filled with the Holy Ghost. So, <laughs> so had Demas. Demas had been too. Yeah. Demas had been too. Ananias and Sapphira had been baptized in Jesus' name filled with the Holy Ghost too. Yeah. Amen. The first century church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and we should continue to do the same today. Any doctrine that is not in total harmony with the specific teachings of the apostles is false doctrine because the word has not been rightly divided. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that the church, which he said is the habitation of God through the Spirit, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Continuing steadfastly apostles' doctrine. The Old Testament's the Old Testament that brings us to Christ. The Gospels is, tells us about that Christ, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection. One of the verses concludes, one of the, the book, the book of Luke, concludes with his ascension. And that same writer of Luke picks up that same exact narrative right there in Acts chapter 1. And it, the book of Acts begins with his ascension. And before his, immediately before his ascension, he commanded them to go back to Jerusalem and tarry until they receive the promise of the Father, till they be endued with power from on high, so they obeyed him. And then he ascended into heaven. And those that obeyed him 
were part of the beginning of the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, when the promise of the Holy the Father, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the gift from God, was poured upon them, and they were brought into the New Testament by that experience. And immediately, there was a crowd that gathered because of what was going on, and, the, and Peter preached to them, and they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Men and brethren, what shall we do? The angel told Cornelius, Go send for Peter. He'll come and tell you what you ought to do. Peter, in recounting that, in Acts 11 says that the angel told him, that he'll come and tell you words whereby you and your house can be saved. So the book of Acts is the only history we have of actual sinners being saved. And then starting with Romans 1.1, thank God for the epistles. But That's all the teachings and the instructions of the apostles to the saved people about what they did to be saved, what that meant, what was the description of that? For instance, Romans 6 is one of the most beautiful places. An in-depth discussion of that, of what you did and what it means, and all the ramifications of it from both a natural and a, and a, a, a spiritual perspective, from both a earthly and a heavenly perspective. All of us there. And it keeps going on like that. Paul did that in a very abbreviated sense in Titus chapter 3, among other places. So the point I'm making to you is that you would understand the very great importance of rightly dividing the word and considering the context, the context, context. Who were the verses addressed to? Again, did I believe, do I believe Noah built an ark? Yes. Do I believe in, there was a flood? Yes. I believe that. Do I believe the word of God, even though it's true, is telling me to go build an ark? No. Why? Context. Context. I pray that this lesson, which is one of the longer lessons of the entire 21 lesson series on how to study the Bible, I pray that this lesson has really enlightened your eyes and let you see the very critically important principle of both rightly dividing the word and how to consider context when you're coming up with an understanding or the Lord is giving you a revelation of how to harmonize all the verses on a particular subject. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I speak the grace of God upon you that you might receive his grace to open your eyes, to deliver you from any blindness you may have from religious tradition or otherwise, and that you would hunger to know the truth, but also have the wisdom and the spiritual discernment to be able to hear his voice as he explains his word to you, which will always be explained in context, in rightly divided fashion. God bless you in Jesus' name.